We want to look at verses 17 through 32, the inauguration of, of Purim. Esther chapter 9 and verses 17 through 32. And uh, you'll note on the overhead uh, where we're at in our outline working through the, uh, through the book, uh, chapter 9 is where we are, the Feast of Purim instituted tonight. It's very difficult, very difficult to completely destroy God's chosen people, Israel. Yea, impossible. And it's really folly to try and do so. This endeavor really is to challenge God with, a, with high-handed rebellion, showing no regard for His word, His character, or His covenant commitment to His chosen people. Now, few things could be more blasphemous than to try to destroy God's chosen people. Well, from very early on in the Bible, we have God's word that he will bless those who bless Israel and he will curse those who curse uh, the people of Abraham, as we find in Genesis 12, 3. Yet in depraved rebellion, Satan throughout history has had people step up, step forward, and try to prove God wrong in this regard, because it's really kind of a challenge to God and his promise to preserve this people. And uh, people have tried to challenge God in this way. And they all, without exception, have failed. Israel is still here. Now, Esther is an Old Testament story of God's providential faithfulness to his people, Israel, really in spite of themselves. And uh, we might say, well, yeah, that's true of Israel. But I think on a personal level, isn't that true of all of us? That God is faithful to us in spite of ourselves. Uh, Not because of us so much, really at all even, (laughs) in spite of us. And that's certainly true of Israel. Uh, Who God uses in the story to accomplish his objectives of preserving his people, his covenant people, is really besides the point. And the story is really about God above all else. Now, the setting of the story is post-Babylonian exile, after King Cyrus had decreed for the Jews to return to their homeland. However, a majority of the Jews were not so moved to go back home to Israel, to the promised land. And so they remained in the land, in the empire of Persia. And, of course, this became a massive empire, and they're scattered throughout this massive empire of Persia. Well, in the providence of God, Mordecai, a Jew, had a high position in the government, sat in the gate of the king, whatever that involved. And his cousin Esther became queen. Well, in this context, a man named Haman, who was a descendant of Agag, uh, who was king of the Amalekites during the time of King Saul, this descendant of the Amalekites, Haman, came to hate Mordecai the Jew. Because Mordecai the Jew refused to bow before him. And and he had this high position in the land. And even the king said, everybody should bow before Haman. Not Mordecai. I think he knew the history here. We're we're, we're arch enemies. And really, there's a curse upon the Amalekites. And so he was not going to bow before Haman. And Haman hated him because of this. Well, full of himself and full of hatred for Mordecai and the Jews, Haman devised a plot by which all the Jews in the entire huge Persian empire were to be systematically killed on a certain day. And he, you know, massaged it through the king to where it became law. The law of the Medes and the Persians couldn't be changed. Once it's law, it's law. 
So he was pretty happy about this. Well, in the end, the plan backfired, and the king had Haman hung on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. In addition, the king allowed the Jews, although he couldn't change a law that had been put in effect, the Jews were to be exterminated on a certain day, the king allowed another law to go into place, which allowed the Jews to prepare to defend themselves on this very day against their enemies. Well, when the day came, the Jews, very much prepared for the day, with the support of the king at this point. On that day, the Jews killed 500 people in the capital city, including the 10 sons of Haman. And they also killed an additional 75,000 people throughout the rest of that vast Persian empire. Now, Esther, realizing there was still unrest against the Jews in the capital city, went and asked the king that the Jews might have an additional day to defend themselves, which was granted. And so the next day, the Jews killed 300 more of their enemies in the capital city and that area immediately surrounding the capital city. So in summary, the Jews killed most of their enemies on the 13th of the month of Adar. But in the capital city, 300 more were killed on the 14th as well. And that brings us to our study in Esther chapter 9, verse 17. Let's pick it up, verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th, mo- uh, 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So this is a summary verse, and it's speaking in reference to the Jews really throughout the kingdom of Persia, generally. They had victory over their enemies on the 13th, and the 14th, they celebrated. They rested and they made it a day of feasting and celebration. But then note uh, verse 18. But the Jews who were in Shushan, which is the capital city, assembled together on the, the 13th day as well as on the 14th day. That is, they assembled to defend themselves on the 13th and the 14th. And on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So in the capital city, the Jews defended themselves on the 13th and then again on the 14th. And then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and celebration. So the Jews in the capital city had their celebration one day later because the cleanup work involved one extra day there. So uh, note uh, here the, the vastness of this Persian empire. We're talking the capital city here. And then, you know, there's 127 provinces. Huge, huge, mega empire. And, uh, you know, all the Jews in the whole entire empire were to be killed on this certain day. But now God turned it around. But in the capital city of Susa or Shushan, however you want to pronounce it, pronounce both ways, uh, they took two days to take care of business and not just one day like the rest of the empire. Now, a footnote here. It is interesting that the Jews to this day, for the most part, celebrate Purim on the 14th. But in Jerusalem... The Jewish capital, they celebrated on the 15th. Isn't that kind of interesting? I mean, that, that tradition still holds to this day. Verse 19. Therefore, the Jews of the, Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. The word holiday literally means a good day. During the intertestamental period in the Old Testament, this day became known as Mordecai's Day. Mordecai's Day. 
because of the official role he had in the government and the official correspondence he sent throughout the land orchestrating it. Now, the month of Adar uh, was the 12th month on the Jewish calendar, corresponding roughly to our February-March. And so uh, note uh, here, the Jewish calendar, uh, we are talking this month right here. And so on the 13th, you know, they defended themselves. And then in the, in the capital, they also, the 14th, and then they, they uh, rested. So uh, note that as far as the timing here. Verse 20, And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy, sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. Now, it's interesting. They were already doing this, but now there's kind of like this from this, I mean, the the second in command in this massive kingdom is sending out kind of this letter to all the Jews, instructing them in in regards to how they should uh, remember this. Uh, Mordecai called on them to have an annual holiday even instructing them on how to celebrate it. But noted very carefully that he called for a two-day festival and not just one day. Uh, Note verse 21, that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and the 15th days. Uh, Now that's interesting. Uh, The sense seems to be here that there's concern that there might be a little bit of a schism over this. Uh, and he doesn't want schism among the Jews on when they should celebrate. Seems like kind of a foolish thing to get into an argument about, right? Special music? Anyway. People can fight over anything, including even how and when to celebrate. There's an old joke that says, where you have two Jews, you have three opinions, right? <laughs> and I'm not sure the Jews have a corner on this tendency, but you get the point. Even in victory, it seems that the day to be celebrated could potentially have kind of become uh, something of a disagreement, uh, maybe leading to a little tension among the Jews. And Mordecai used his influence to squelch this problem. He says, we're going to have a, a, two-day, a two-day festival here. And note that everyone was to be included. Even the poor are to be included in the celebration. It's to be a celebration of sorrow turned to joy, of mourning turned into holiday. And it's customary to this very day for the Jews to take food to their neighbors on the celebration of Purim, uh, to eat tri-cornered pastries that supposedly are shaped like Haman's hat, or some say his ears. Uh, It's a major time of feasting and celebration. I mean, this is party time for the Jews. All the while humiliating the memory of, of Haman. Uh, so, you know, here's just a picture of some of the things here. You know, you, they dress up, wear masks. They got these pastries, like I say, uh, three-sided. Here's a noisemaker that we'll talk about in just a moment. But uh, so this, this is all part of uh, Purim for the Jews. And like I say, it, it is very festive. I mean, this is a good time. This is party time for the Jews. And they really do party up. In fact, some places they've made laws where they've got to kind of hold it down because they really get so carried away in their Purim feasts and celebration. Verse 23. 
So the Jews accepted the custom, which they had begun. They had already been, you know, started, they started this practice. It's already in place, but now they accepted kind of what's coming down from, from Mordecai to regulate it, as Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast per, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Well, this became a celebration of how the Jews were spared and how in the process the tables were turned on Haman, who is once again described here as the enemy of the Jews. By the way, three times in the book he is, he is defined and described in this way. Haman is really a type of arch enemy of the Jews, which is ultimately to be realized in the person of the Antichrist. But again, as with Haman, in the end, the Antichrist will be defeated and the Jews will be preserved. You just cannot beat God. And to take on the Jews and try and to annihilate them is really to take on God. And God is up to the challenge big time. No one ever defeats the God of covenant, the God of Israel. As I like to say, only losers take on God. And to take on Israel is to take on God. This is from the Jewish Passover liturgy. In every generation, they rise up to destroy us. But the Holy One, blessed be He, always deliver us from their hands. And that's kind of been the pattern. In every generation, they rise up to destroy us. They, they keep trying. And God keeps preserving the Jewish people. Verse 26 so they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Now this is most interesting because they named this famous holiday after a pagan ritual. Uh, it is a holiday that was not prescribed by God, and yet it has biblical roots in the sense that the historical occasion here is rooted in, in what happened in relationship to the Jews and God preserving the Jewish people uh, providentially, as we have studied. But uh, I want to zero in for just a moment on that word per. Uh, the word per was an Assyrian word for lot, referring to something that was cast uh, superstitiously in order to make a decision. And it's steeped in superstition, the whole idea of per in the context here. And so it relates back in context here to this superstition pagan practice applied by Haman, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 7. Note back there, chapter 3, verse 7. In the first month, which is in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is the lot, before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So the way they decided on the time when they would do this is through this superstitious casting of pur. And verse 13 gives it more specifically. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. So uh, we talk about Pur here. Uh, these days are called Purim after the, after the name Pur. Uh, Purim is plural for Pur, as practiced by Haman. And this is interesting, as I say, because the entire holiday is traced back to this and is named, really, after uh, this pagan ritual used by Haman uh, to determine the timeline that the Jews should be annihilated. Now, some Christians, uh, let's talk a little application here, 
wonder whether it's appropriate to celebrate Christmas or Easter. And I'm sure if you've been around for very long, you know there's debates over these things. Uh, By the way, Easter I prefer to call Resurrection Sunday. But uh, in a sense, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. That's why we meet on the first day of the week. That's why we're here right now is because Christ was risen from the dead on the first day of the week. And we come in His honor uh, weekly on the first day of the week. Well, uh, there is much uh, steeped in uh, tradition and uh, even paganism surrounding some of these Christian holidays. And uh, you don't have to, again, dig very far to see how that came in. But it's interesting. Here with Purim, we have an example of celebrating a holiday that was not specifically prescribed by God and is, in fact, tied in name to the pagan ritual used by Haman to set the timing for the extermination of the Jews. So I think it really becomes a matter of what one does with any given holiday, Anything can be corrupted, and you can bet that the big tent of Christendom will leaven thoroughly whatever it's dealing with, as as brought out by Jesus in the parable of the leaven. The Bible says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So I personally think the coming of Christ into the world to be our Savior is worthy of celebrating, and the resurrection of Christ is something worthy of celebration. Uh, Whatever the world does... It does not really take away from the freedom that we have in Christ for such celebrations as long as we keep it God-focused for His glory. There is one other example of a holiday practiced by the Jews that is not specifically ordained by God, and that's the issue I'm dealing with here. What if a holiday is not expressly ordained by God? Well, Purim is an example of that. There is one other example in the Scriptures. And that's the Feast of Dedication mentioned in John chapter 10, verse 22, which was also known as the Feast of Lights or commonly called Hanukkah. That's right, Hanukkah, uh, which means dedication. And, of course, that's set in the intertestamental time with Antiochus Epiphanes who, uh, you know, desecrated the temple and the altar there. And when the Jews got it back, You know, you have the idea that there there was not the the holy oil available to light the candles in the temple, so it it miraculously burned for eight days. And so that's how it became uh, the Festival of Lights or the Feast of of Lights. But again, uh, this happened in that intertestamental time. There were no prophets. It was not specifically prescribed by God. But the Jews ever since then have celebrated Hanukkah, just like ever since back here in the days of Esther, they have celebrated Purim. Well, by way of precedent, these, uh, by the way, Jesus attended this uh, Feast of Lights in John chapter 10. doesn't seem that he had a a problem with it. He didn't stand up and say, you know, this is not ordained of God. We should all go home now. (laughs) That that didn't happen. Uh, By way of precedent, these examples argue for the idea that God is not necessarily opposed to all holidays that are not specifically prescribed by him. Uh, Ironically, what Haman practiced as a pagan superstition was providentially overruled by God, and that is the key point. Uh, Haman superstitiously thought, you know, there was something to this, uh, you know, and fate was kind of behind what was happening here in terms of purr, uh, in terms of luck, or in terms of fate, when in fact God sovereignly controls all. There is no such thing as luck, only providence. In uh, Proverbs, we read this verse, Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 
Carl Arm, here we go. Carl Armerding uh, says this: the Book of Esther gives us a segment of the history of the Jews, which is not supplied elsewhere in the Bible. For instance. It is here that we learn about the origin of the Feast of Purim, which, as we all know, is celebrated by the Jewish people to this very day. So if we didn't have this in the Bible, we'd say, what, what are we doing here? What's this celebration all about? Well, let's pick it up now, 26b. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. And these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish from among their descendants. And that has carried the day. That's true even to where we are today. This is exactly what has happened. To this very day, the Jews celebrate the demise of Haman and the deliverance of the Jews on this occasion. And they do so by reading the, the scroll of Esther in the synagogue, completes with all kinds of interaction. It's very animated. Whenever Haman's name is a reading through Esther, whenever Haman's name is mentioned, they jeer and boo. And they use loud noisemakers to drown out the sound of his name. And some will shout, let his name be blotted out. Or let him be accursed. So I say this is all kind of at the expense. They're celebrating kind of at the expense of Haman. Oftentimes plays are performed reenacting the demise and the defeat of Haman. And for this holidays, the Jews often dress up with masks or, or various costumes. Uh, for the Jews, Purim, as I say, is party time at the expense of Haman. So uh, note uh, again here just some of the party emphasis here. Happy Purim. You know, we've got a little bit of wine going here. The pastries, the noisemakers, you know, all kinds of costume dressing up. So, you know, it is party time. Here you go. Here's, a, I think, maybe Jerusalem somewhere. They're carrying on. They're having a party. Look what happened with the Jews in relationship to Haman. They have not forgotten, even to this day. Verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Habahel, with Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. So again, evidently, there was some confusion or tension over exactly when Purim should be celebrated. So a second letter was sent with the full authority of Queen Esther and Mordecai, the prime minister behind it. The first letter is mentioned in verse 20, and now the second letter is referenced here in verses 29 through 32. Verse 30, And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, uh, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus. So he's using his official governmental position to get the word out. With words of peace and truth. To confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. Now it is thought by many commentators that verse 22 with its emphasis on sorrow turned into joy and here in verse 30 emphasizing peace and truth are really an allusion to Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 19. 
which reads, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth. During the intertestamental period, there was all kinds of fasts that uh, came to the fore that the Jews started practicing during the uh, Babylonian captivity. I really should say uh, before the intertestamental, during, during the Babylonian captivity. And here it goes on to say, These fasts shall be now joy and gladness and cheerful feast for the house of Judah, therefore love, truth, and peace. So again, during the time of the Babylonian captivity, the Jews practiced a series of fasts denoting various calamities in Israel, including the captivity. But with the return from captivity, a new day had dawned. Now their annual fasting was to be turned into times of joyful feasting and celebration involving love, truth, and peace. Well, this also pictures what has now happened to Israel in the time of Esther. Their time of sorrow has now been turned into joy, fasting into gladness, and falsehood and conflict into truth and peace. Note that in addition to this being a holiday of uproarious celebration, uh, this second letter also prescribed fasting and lamenting. Did you catch it there at the end of verse 31? And their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. Now most believe that in this second letter, uh, it was also spelled out that there should be a commemorative time of fasting that should be included in the holiday, remembering uh, their time of fasting that preceded their deliverance. Although no date is officially assigned here, uh, the Jews have traditionally observed the 13th of Adar as a fast day, and then the 14th and the 15th as a time of great celebration. So verse 32 concludes, So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. This became a matter of official records in the kingdom, and for the Jews a recognized official requirement for them as a people. Tim LaHaye says, Prophetically, a final time of Jacob's trouble perpetuated by the future Antichrist in the tribulation will occur. The return of the Messiah to establish his kingdom will elevate Israel to the most blessed nation of all time. So they are yet to go through a terrible, terrible time, the time of Jacob's trouble, but again, they're going to emerge with great joy in in the kingdom. And so there's a lot in the book of Esther that mirrors not only Israel's history, but prophetically what is yet to happen to them as a people, culminating ultimately in the kingdom to come. Well, years ago, somebody from the West asked a Russian Jew what he thought would happen if the Russians stepped up their oppression of the Jews. And the Jew responded something like this, Oh, we would probably get another feast. And asked what he meant by that, he said this, something like this. He said, well, Pharaoh tried to wipe out the Hebrews, and the result was Passover. Haman tried to exterminate us as a people, and the result was Purim. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to destroy us, and the result was Hanukkah. If the Russians seek to destroy us, we'll probably get another holiday. (laughs) It is true that the Jewish people can no more be destroyed then God can be destroyed. God has linked His name, His honor, His very person to the nation of Israel. If Israel can be destroyed, my faith is completely shattered in the God of the Bible. 
Uh, the very name Yahweh means covenant faithfulness. It means the God who does not change, who is completely 100% consistent. If God is not faithful, this, is, by the way, is why it's such a big deal in my theology uh, to reject covenant theolo- uh, theology, which says God is done with Israel, and now somehow uh, the church is spiritual Israel. It's like we throw away all the covenant promises to the patriarchs. I mean, that to me is the height of blasphemy. I just, I just can't go there. It's a very serious error in my theology, my th- way of thinking about theology. That's why I'm a dispensationalist. I believe God has a program for Israel. And then the church is distinct from Israel. And so we don't want to spiritualize what God said to Israel and say, well, he's washed his hands of Israel. And now, you know, it's nice. They got all the curses, but now we get all the blessings. I mean, that's totally inconsistent. God is not going to allow the Jews to be destroyed. The book of Esther is in here for a reason. And it emphasizes his covenant faithfulness to his covenant people Israel in spite of themselves. I can tell you God's faithfulness to Israel right now tonight is not because of the faithfulness of of the Jews. Most Jews, an overwhelming majority of Jews in the land of Israel are very secular. They don't give God the credit for being where they are today. They, very proud people, look what we have done. And they are amazed at their accomplishments. They don't really recognize that God has done this for them. So I say, it's God's faithfulness in spite of themselves. And as we think about it, that's true for ourselves. You know, the older I get, the more, I I think the closer you get to God, the more mindful you are of your own sinfulness and how unworthy I am within myself. Uh, I need grace, pure grace. Well, God's faithfulness is the issue. And His covenant faithfulness is always totally consistent when it comes to the nation of Israel. He has providentially preserved them to this very day. They are back in the land. By the way, Israel has to be in the land for last day's prophecy to be fulfilled. For almost 2,000 years, they were out of the land. So, and, and people kind of come to have these weird theologies like, well, I think he's done with Israel. You know, there is no Israel. And all the things with Jerusalem, it can't be fulfilled. They're not even there in the land. Well, that's true, but it wasn't the right time. They're now back in the land. And all these things are coming into place in relationship to the fulfillment of last day's prophecy. Yes, the God of Israel is still the God of Israel. He's not the God of the church as well, but he's the God of Israel, proving he is a covenant God of covenant faithfulness, and he will preserve his people. All right, we're going to have one more message, three verses. Not sure we can get a message out of that or not, but we'll try, okay? (laughs) Anyway, let's stand. Let's stand and... (laughs) Have our concluding song.